All right, let's keep the Nietzsche train going. I'm feeling in a Nietzsche mood. So this will be talking about, or I'll be talking about, Untruth and Lying in a Non-Moral Sense, which I think is a different title in different places, uh, like Truth and Lies in an Extra Moral Sense or whatever. Uh, but this is a short little essay, and I've been shying away from just doing single essays just because I don't feel like it's enough content, but this essay is so important that we got to do it. So without further ado, so he begins by saying that cognition, that is almost consciousness, was something that emerged in humans. So we think here of, for any of those people familiar with True Detective, you know, we have Russ Cole's supposed philosophy that uh, humans developed consciousness and that was like a misstep in evolution. I think Nietzsche is very much saying the same thing here. But just as this consciousness emerged, Nietzsche is confident that it's going to go away. So we are going to lose this kind of consciousness to be able to fall back, I think, to what he calls in the birth of tragedy a kind of primal unity. So you get rid of everything that makes you individual, you get rid of everything that makes you a person, a subject, that is your consciousness, and become one with the world. And that is because for him, consciousness, or cognition, is not special. In fact, he says that a midge, that is a little fly, could essentially house the same potential or we could communicate through these flies and you know we would think that was the greatest thing ever just as we think this ability to have cognition is the greatest thing ever to which he says that he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says it's not that great because then we're burdened by thought essentially and what is more what this fundamentally points to is our being the weakest of the animal species because we don't have talons, we don't have fur, we don't have teeth. What we have is intellect. What we have is um, cognition that is reserved for the weakest of all animals. And it is that intellect that covers us like a fog, that or covers our eyes like a fog, that makes it so that we can't get back to a kind of oneness with the world because we are always trying to move towards something other you know, intellect, for the sake of intellect. So the philosopher for Nietzsche is someone that he looks down upon, even though he's come to take on that mantle himself, or he took on that mantle himself. Because the philosopher is someone that braces, embraces the intellect like nothing else. So here he's taking aim at Hobbes. He's taking here aim at Plato. All those kinds of philosophers that say that it is totally necessary for humanity to get away from anything animalistic to get away from anything quote-unquote natural or anything that came before cognition because that is what humans do. But of course, he's not so certain that this is a kind of natural development. It is something that just kind of happened. And moreover, it is what he calls a submission to the dream image. Now, for those that aren't familiar, the dream image, and this is something he presents in The Birth of Tragedy, corresponds to what he calls the Apollonian trend, the Apollonian worldview, pertaining to the god Apollo, which is the god of, essentially, um, god of healing and medicine and, and music and poetry, but it is also the god of representation, the god of images, the god of taking us away from reality, that is, removing the veil, or what lies beyond the veil, and instead gives us images, gives us ideology, gives us culture that we come to take to be real, that Nietzsche wants to get, get us away from. 
So to submit to the intellect is then to submit to this dream image, as he calls it. And we see at this moment the emergence of a kind of what he calls a peace treaty, the end of the war of all against all, so the end of the kind of animalness in humanity in favor of this general intellect. And it is at this moment that he says that truth and lies are born, because prior to this point, there was no such thing as truth. There was no such thing as lying, because there was no such thing as truth. Uh, and it is at this moment, then, that humans began to be obsessed with truth, just because it was endowed with such a meaning that we thought it to be of a almost a transcendent nature, and that for that very reason, we must pursue it. We must make it ours. And then it, he found it very suspicious, or he finds it very suspicious, that this truth that we became obsessed with always pointed to something pleasant. So at this moment, at the moment that truth and lies were born, a narrative around humankind as being inherently good, humankind as being inherently, you know, benevolent, began to emerge. So that was considered truthful, which always had a fundamental association with what was considered good. So we get a lot of the resonances here of the kind of Foucauldian idea of, you know, power and knowledge. What is considered right, you know, then comes to be considered true. Uh, but this, for Nietzsche, is total hogwash. Because if we actually follow this path, so that is, if we look back on ourselves as humans, we will not find the truth we are seeking. Because truth is very subjective. Instead, what we find is barbarism. And fundamentally, the only reason that any of us are here, you know, right now, listening to this or me saying this, is because our ancestors were better at killing than other ancestors. That is the only reason why we're here right now. And we can't lose sight of that fact. So Nietzsche is not interested in this rose-colored glasses look at the world. He wants us to see the world for what it is. That is a world that is violent, a world that is, by virtue of that violence, very beautiful and very has a, has a lot of potential. So it is impossible then for us to arrive at any sort of truth, because the only way we have a connection to that truth is through language. And because language never actually gets at the heart of a thing, what he calls a thing in itself, which is coming from Immanuel Kant, it only gets at the appearance of the thing. Because language can't, you know, give you over to something in the way that pure, <laughs> pure, way that experience or a kind of disappearance into a oneness with the world can. So when we speak through language to arrive at truth, we only speak in metaphors. We never can arrive at, at truth as it really is for Nietzsche. So here I'm going to read a longer passage from this essay where he develops this a little bit. So he says, let us consider in particular how concepts are formed. Each word immediately becomes a concept, not by virtue of the fact that it is intended to serve as a memory, say, of the unique, utterly individualized primary experience to which it owes its existence, but because at the same time it must fit countless other, more or less similar cases, i.e. cases which strictly speaking, are never equivalent, and thus nothing other than non-equivalent cases. Every concept comes into being by making equivalent that which is non-equivalent, just as it is certain that no leaf is ever exactly the same as any other leaf. 
it is equally certain that the concept leaf is formed by dropping these individual differences arbitrarily. By forgetting those features which differentiate one thing from another, so that the concept then gives rise to the notion that something other than leaves exists in nature, something which would be leaf, a primal form, say from which in nature something would be a leaf, a primal form, sorry, say from which all leaves were woven, drawn, delineated, dyed, curled, painted, but by a clumsy pair of hands so that no single example turned out to be a faithful, correct, and reliable copy of the primal form. We call a man honest. We ask, why did he act so honestly today? Our answer is usually, because of his honesty. Honesty. Yet again, this means that the leaf is the cause of the leaves. So what he's saying here is that in order for us to actually understand anything through language, it demands us to get rid of any peculiarities, to get rid of any individual uh, situations, and to just start to classify in order to make things easier. So I think it's, I think it's Roland Balt has this one image of a child crawling through um, the grass. And he, he asks, how many shades of green does the child see? To which the answer is potentially infinite because they don't have a classificatory system to understand all the different, you know, shades that they are seeing. They haven't learned green yet. So what they are seeing is infinite possibility, essentially, with all the different shades, with all the different kinds of, you know, pigmentation in leaves and grass and all that, that make it impossible to say how many different colors there are. But for an adult, it's quite simple. The answer is green. And we see only one shade of green. And of course, people more versed in that would say, well, oh, you have all the different scientific species of different leaves, of different kinds of grass. But even among the same similar species, no two pieces of grass are the same. One is longer than the other. One is wider than the other. One is, you know, go on forever here. Uh, that make it so difficult to simply classify them, yet we do that. We derive for classification which is fundamentally exclusionary because it eradicates all possibility. And this is the, you know, the best evidence of the foundations that Nietzsche sets for what is today called, you know, postmodernism, you know, this thing about truth, which I, for anyone who hates those online idiots that like to spout shit about how Nietzsche is, you know, an arbiter for conservative you know, religious scientific rhetoric, they only need to read these 15, I think it's 15 pages. don't know how long it is, maybe 10 pages. These 10 pages have that worldview totally thrown out of whack. But I digress. But in the face of all this, Nietzsche makes a very good move where he says that while none of this, that is language, can point to the real essence of human beings, he also cautions us from saying that it is non-essence because he says that in and of itself, that will be a kind of dogmatism. That will be the, um, the kind of supplanting of one form of truth with another. So in his words, for the opposition we make between individual and species is also anthropomorphic, that is human, and does not stem from the essence of things, although we equally do not dare to say that it does not correspond to the essence of things, since that would be a dogmatic assertion and, as such, just as incapable of being proved as its opposite, which I think is an important point that he makes.
So what is truth for Nietzsche? He gives us an answer answer very clearly. He says that it is a mobile army of metaphors, metonymies, anthropomorphisms, in short, a sum of human relations which have been subjected to poetic and rhetorical tensification, translation and decoration, and which, after they have been in in use for a long time, strike a people as firmly established, canonical, and binding. Truths are illusions of which we have forgotten they are illusions. Metaphors which have become worn by frequent use and have lost all sensuous vigor. Coins which, having lost their sap, are now regarded as metal and no longer as coins. So then, as a species, we come to appreciate truth as it relates to the metaphor, to the illusion, to the veil, to the image, over what he calls sensuous perceptions. So what the body can tell us, what affect might tell us, what, you know, being in a world among others will tell us that transcends the domain of speech, that transcends language, that it transcends metaphor, that we cannot necessarily speak that which we cannot necessarily put into language, but that is nevertheless uh, no less significant. In fact, it is much more significant for Nietzsche. And that fundamentally truth, which opposes that affective kind of individualistic yet non-individualistic because it is a giving oneself over uh, is the truth is the domain of classifications castes and hierarchy that sets the stage exactly for the situation we find ourselves in today which isn't to say that this can really be applicable to a marxist analysis in relation to class but it has some fundamental affinities between the two where marx wants to you know impose a single class so to speak that is the workers or have the workers become the dominant class. Nietzsche says all classes are bad, and as long as we are working within that kind of rhetorical frame, we are going to be driving ourselves into a negative direction towards the spectral light of truth, away from our kind of primal heritage, that is the heritage of sensuous perceptions. So then Nietzsche gives us an image of someone, uh, or how truth is really constructed, which he finds is very ironic. He says that if someone hides something behind a bush, looks for it in the same place and then finds it there, his seeking and finding is nothing much to boast about. But this is exactly how things are as far as the seeking and finding of truth within the territory of reason. And this speaks very much to the domain of science today because it only solves the problems to which it sets the conditions for, where these ideal conditions are set up that it can then affirm and reproduce which doesn't correspond to nature or reality, but it is endowed with a kind of meaning because it can be reproduced. Which, I should say, isn't to discredit it. I'm extremely fascinated with science in every way, specifically math, Uh, so it's not to diminish any of that, but it's also to point to the ways that it is very... uh, um, um, It is foreclosed. It, it, It is shut off from possibility in favor of kind of endless, tautological, that is circular, solipsistic, uh, self-affirmation. So this is in opposition to the animal world, where he says that by these standards, the human being is an architectural genius who is far superior to the bee. The latter builds with wax while she gathers from nature, whereas the human being builds with the far more delicate material of concepts, which he must first manufacture for himself, which therefore makes us so much more fragile getting at the beginnings of what he was saying here 
this essay. So because humans create their world through their own concepts, not as the bee does through nature, then everything is considered only in, um, in relation to humanity, which is taken as the kind of original, natural point, the kind of Archimedean point from which all things are measured. So this has come about in the following manner. So in short, only because man forgets himself as a subject, and indeed as an artistically creative subject, does he live with some degree of peace, security, and consistency, things that Nietzsche doesn't like. So if he would escape for just a moment from the prison walls of his faith, it would mean the end of his consciousness of self. So this harkens back to the birth of tragedy once more, where he makes the case that music and tragedy are two things that take people outside of their selfness in order to cast them into this kind of communitarian, uh, what he calls the primal unity, which I've already mentioned here. Because the individual, what he calls the principum individuationist, is wholly oppressive because then you become like trapped in your own selfness. Sort of go back just a moment to the idea of humans measuring things in relation to themselves. They then believe the world because they've somehow found the conditions or created the conditions to look at the world objectively. That is kind of positivistic, empirical standing. We believe that we can kind of foster what Nietzsche identifies as correct perception. So that is for him a non-existent criterion. So, but generally he continues here. It seems to me that the, that the correct perception, which would mean the full and adequate expression of an object in the subject, is something contradictory and impossible. For between two absolutely different spheres, such as subject and object are, there is no causality, no correctness, no expression, but at most an aesthetic way of relating, by which I mean an elusive transference, a stammering translation into quite different language. So it is impossible for us to actually grasp a thing in itself, or to bridge the gap between what he says here is the subject and the object, between the viewer and the thing being viewed, precisely because we are only looking at it through the, our glasses of correct perception, that is, our glasses of the empirical world, which he says, for it is not true that the essence of things appears in the empirical world. And that is because the kind of classification implied of this correct perception is not found in the sensuous nature of humanity, what he calls their essence almost. So even the relation of a nervous stimulus, he says, to the image produced thereby is inherently not a necessary relationship. But when that same image has been reproduced millions of times and has been passed down through many generations of humanity, indeed eventually appears in the whole of humanity as a consequence of the same occasion, it finally acquires the same significance for all human beings, as if it were the only necessary image, and as if that relation of the original nervous stimulus of the image produced were a relation of strict causality, in exactly the same way as a dream, if repeated eternally, would be felt and judged entirely as reality. Which is, you know, there's a very strong parallel to be drawn here between what Judith Butler says in Gender Trouble, where it is through repetition of various gender dynamics in their kind of performance and not like a on-stage performance but by their being acted out repeatedly that they come to be taken as truth that they come to be taken as the things that are in themselves not appearances and that for Nietzsche um, a painter who has no hands and who wished to express in song the image hovering before him 
will still reveal much more through this substitution of one sphere for another than the empirical world betrays of the essence of things. So it is that world of art that comes so much closer to the essence of things than this empirical world that we come to take to be truth. We've kind of submitted to it. So what should instead be the case is having, he gives us an example, uh, if we were to look at the world through how a worm or bird or some something like that does it, or a plant, uh, one person would see something as red, a second person were to see it as blue, while a third were to hear it as a sound. Nobody would ever speak of nature as something conforming to laws. Rather, they would take it to be nothing other than a highly subjective formation. So this is something that he calls in the genealogy of morality, uh, what it, which I've done on here, uh, perspectival knowledge. You know, how knowledge is only produced by different perspectives, not by a conforming totalizing logic or a meta-narrative to put in the postmodern term so image kind of opposes metaphor to some extent which is the image is kind of scientific made to be real through repetition whereas the metaphor is always enigmatic you know it's kind of it belongs to the domain of illusion possibility and that we can't lose sight of the fact that first comes language and then science it's not as though science created the possibility for our ability to communicate in the way that we do. In fact, this problem that we are confronted with goes much further back than science itself. So we shouldn't make the mistake of taking aim at science specifically, but rather the whole trend towards classification, towards hierarchy, towards castes, anything like that, goes back to the imposition of language in the first instance and doesn't actually have to do with science. So we must be careful not to uh, set our sights at the wrong target here. And it is the dream that must oppose, that must constantly barrage the daylight of science, as Nietzsche calls it, because of its, you know, oppressive mechanisms. And what we get here is a showdown between the man of reason, that is the man of science, and the man of intuition, that is the man of sensuous perception, which in the birth of tragedy, he's a little bit he doesn't apply the same terms here, where the man of intuition also belongs in the birth of tragedy at one point to the domain of science. But just for the sake of it here, we have man of reason versus man of intuition. I'm just presenting, you know, there are discrepancies here. That's why we gotta, we gotta read it all and really understand what's going on. Uh, and between, the, between these two, in this kind of showdown, fight to the death, the man of intuition will always suffer more because they are the ones that are born within suffering. They do not hide behind veils. They are ready to embrace pain in ways that uh, the man of uh, reason is not. And yeah, that <laughs> I think that more or less covers it. Uh, this brilliant essay that I, get, I would have read for me the first time was 2019. Oh, God, seven maybe seven years ago, six, seven years ago, and didn't understand it. Uh, it's only now, you know, reading all this stuff again that I'm getting the sense of it better, at least I think. Uh, but if anyone listened to this and <laughs> sees some glaring holes in what I've said or problems with what I said, you know how to, you know, take me to church on it. Put me, 